Today, I want us to uh, turn in, our, in the scriptures to Matthew chapter, chapter 2 as we continue in this brief Advent series. I've titled The Great Expectations. Matthew chapter 2, 1 through 18. I'll read that section. And I invite you to turn in your own Bibles. Find that. I'm not sure where it is in the church Bible, but you'll find it. All right, let's give our attention to the reading of the Word of God, Matthew chapter 2, beginning verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them, where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed their own way to their own country by another way. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. This is the word of God. We're thankful that we get to freely open it and read it together. I invite you to pray with me as we ask the Lord for help. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would open our ears to hear from you. I pray that we will hear a voice that transcends the voice of a mere man. I pray that your Holy Spirit would imp implant your living and active word in our hearts, that it may accomplish in us what we cannot do for ourselves. 
to make us wise to salvation, to sanctify us and make us like your son in moral character through this very truth. So Father, be with both proclaimer and hearer and grant your grace to us in this time. For the glory of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, since moving to this, uh, this country some 19 years ago, I, I've discovered what you already know, that it always seems to be election season. It just seems to be ever-present, right? As soon as one cycle is completed, you get it. The campaigning begins all over again. Anyway, leading up to this, uh, this recent election, there were great expectations, and depending which side of the political spectrum, whether it was a, a national um, uh, issue or a, a state or a particular local race, and after that election, people were either relieved or disappointed. But leading up to it, leading up to that election, those ac expectations either inspired hopefulness and anticipation or outright opposition and included with that devious and conniving uh, things, which we can certainly have observed. Well, I, I've titled this, this Advent series, as I mentioned, Great Expectations. And this week, what I want to do is, is look at characters in this section of the scripture to see how they represent attitudes to Jesus Christ today. That's what I want to do. And, and Hopefully, we'll see ourselves exemplified in the characters, some of the characters presented. Well, in this narrative, of course, we have these wise men, the Magi. They, they represent to us an attitude of hope and expectation and the fulfillment of God's promises. That's what they represent to me. And at the heart of them is this, this attitude of submission. And it's ultimately revealed in their, their joy and in their worship. But then there's Herod. He, he represents those who vehemently resist the Messiah. And then there's this third set of characters, which really I didn't put in my title, but they're there. They're the religious establishment, chief priests and scribes of the people as the text describes them. Now, their hardness of heart will eventually lead them to viciously take up the cause of Herod by the end of the Gospels. But here, I think what they do is they represent those who are maybe just uninterested in the Messiah. They, they represent a, a spiritual rebellion against God, but it's really expressed in a kind of a spiritual apathy. So we're going to look at these, these characters in the story. So we're going to start with the bad and then move towards, towards the good. And my first heading here, I just have two headings for this message. The first heading is rebellion and resistance, rebellion and resistance. And you've probably heard that expression, the inmates are running the asylum. And I was curious about that because this often gets used. Uh, I was curious about the, the expression or the, the origin of that expression. And I actually found it was linked to some obscure German silent film from the 1920s. Anyway, what it describes, that expression, it really sums up the idea that that utter mayhem in a given authority structure, it exists because those who are under authority are behaving as if they are in charge. Now, that illustration here may be, may be slightly reaching, but it seems to me that, 
that Herod has forgotten that his so-called leadership, his kingship, even though over Judea, even though it's illegitimate, he's forgotten that it's really a stewardship over people who had been set apart by God. God is the ultimate authority. And his attitude to the coming of the Christ was, was really one of rebellion and resistance to God himself, which really ends up in what could only be described, I think, as an insane murder spree against the innocent. And that's where I get the, 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 the inmate running the asylum. An insane murder spree. A little background on Herod uh, from history. So he is called Herod the Great, uh, that's really to distinguish him uh, from Herod Antipas, who, who follows him. Uh, but that he was great was by no means a moral statement. Uh, Herod was a client king installed effectively by, by Rome over the province of Judea. Historically, the, the territory belonging to the tribe of Judah, give or take some land. And he was in that role since sometime after 40 B.C. And he remained in that role for some 33 years until his death. And this is, this is still debatable. And just understanding when Christ was born in what year, uh, sometime between 4 B.C. and 1 in, in A.D. or the Common Era. He was a very able administrator. That's why he had favor with Rome. And he undertook these massive, massive building projects. And really most notably was the, the building, the rebuilding, I should say, of the temple in Jerusalem. It was called Herod's Temple. Now, he was not a king, as I've said. He, he was thought to be illegitimate. He was not a king in the tradition of the line of King David. His father was an Idumean, which, which is a way of saying he was descended from the Edomites, Esau. His mother was a Jew. And some, some sources in history suggest that he had converted to Judaism. Others certainly reject that. And faithful Jews, again, regarded him as illegitimate for that role. And, and certainly his decadent uh, and very immoral lifestyle was anything but Jewish. So he didn't really look like appropriately like a king, though he might have been in very much in the tradition of some of the, the Israelite kings of the past. He was absolutely brutal and paranoid about his power. And in his latter days, he, he had his wife and some of his sons killed just out of suspicion that they may be plotting against him. That's from history. Now, from the text, we see that he was troubled. We're told that in the text. Now, this is not a mild anxiety. You've got to get this. He was highly disturbed, and he was very fearful about the inquiry that the wise men had made. And all Jerusalem with him, the text tells us. All Jerusalem. And, and, and I take it really that their, their agitation, the collective agitation of the city of Jerusalem was knowing this Herod. These magi, these wise men have come to the city inquiring about the one who is to be born king of the Jews. Herod gets wind of it. What? A usurper? Somebody else? And so, understandably, the city was fearful of what he might do. And those fears were certainly proved to be valid. Anyway, Herod knew enough of the scriptures to consult with religious leaders, and we see that in verses four through six. And, and these religious leaders, they report to Herod what the prophet 
Micah in chapter 5 verse 2 says, and Matthew here includes this paraphrase in verse 6, and he says, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Again, Herod, supposedly raised as a Jew, he, he likely had some knowledge of the, the messianic predictions in the scripture and the prophets. But what did he do? What did he do? He calls the wise men in and he feigns this sort of religious interest in the one who is born king of the Jews. In verses 7 and 8, he, he tells these wise men then, hey, when you find him, return to me and let me know the precise location. Of course, deceitfully proclaiming his own desire to worship him. That's what he instructed the Magi to do. His intention, of course, was to destroy the child. And then we see in verses 16 and 17 when the Magi didn't deliver, in his rage, Herod killed all of the infants two years and younger in Bethlehem. An absolute horror. Murderous rage against babies that have nothing to do with any of this. Matthew tells us that this too was prophesied. The way that sin working through Herod in his absolute rebellion, the effect that it has on the city. Matthew quotes from Jeremiah 31.15, a voice, this is in verse 18 of our text, a voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. It would seem that the most important thing to Herod was that he hold on to power. He had no love for Jews and nothing at all in his character demonstrated the remotest submission to the word of God. In fact, he did the opposite. And even being made aware of the scriptures, and this boggles my mind, he did everything that he could to oppose God. And it reminds me of the religious leaders as in, in the, the height of Jesus' ministry towards the end of his life before he went to the cross, having raised Lazarus from the dead. The religious leaders get together. One who, who works the power of God to restore life to one, they plot how they might kill Jesus. Stunning. Stunning rebellion. Herod did the opposite. And of course, as I already said, the text tells us, not getting his way, he, this murderous rage. There's this kind of arrogance as we seek to understand Herod and his ilk. There's this kind of arrogance that believes you can actually oppose God and win. It's really an overestimation of self and really an infinite underestimation of God and who he is. The scriptures clearly say that God opposes the proud. 1 Peter 5, 5 and other places, Proverbs. But understand this. When you resist Jesus, you don't just imperil your own soul. It's not just a private sin. The sin has a way of radiating out and leaving a trail of destruction. And you can see this 
and I'm, this is kind of contemporary stuff, but you can see this in the ideologies being trotted out as truth today. Expressive individualism that elevates the self to the supreme, forgetting that there's a God who, who has made us, that idea that ignores God's word. It's ultimately an idolatry of self, and it hurts the absolute most vulnerable young mothers who have unwanted pregnancies, they're counseled that they have supreme authority to decide if their child lives or dies. And, and we see this, and parents, you're aware of this, but, but children, the, the culture attempts to sexualize them in, in alarming ways. Boys and girls are told that, that the sex is merely a feeling, right? They're counseled to choose the other if they want to. And sometimes... Those who have a power and authority to do so, they, at the hands of these who are authorities, they, they chemically and medically mutilate people in the name of finding true self. When you reject the Messiah, when you're openly rebellious against God, that sin has a way of radiating throughout society and bringing destruction. The religious leaders that Herod consulted are described here as chief priests and scribes of the people. Now the priesthood by this time, uh, they had been very corrupted. Uh, the chief priest would hold that role only with the approval of Rome through the governor. In this case, it would have been Herod. The priests were in the party, generally speaking, party of Sadducees, and they were politically astute. They, they knew how to hold on to power. They knew how to, how to say the right things to the Roman governor. The scribes, these were experts in the law, so they knew the Bible. They knew the, the Old Testament, as we would call it. They knew the Torah. They studied it. They were often from leading rabbinical schools, and, and usually usually as we encounter them through the, the New Testament, usually of the party of the Pharisees. And what they do is they understand the scriptures. They rightly report what the prophet Micah says in chapter 5, verse 2, predicting that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. But it's interesting to me. They seem rather uninterested, don't they? These wise men come. Where is he who is born the king of the Jews? You would think, Oh, we've been waiting for him. But they're rather uninterested. Like the whole city of Jerusalem, they're well aware of the Magi. That wasn't a mystery to them. They don't go to Bethlehem to see. Now, later in the Gospels, we, when Jesus encountered men like these, this is what he said to them, and this is very telling. You can see, you can see the way that this works out. I don't know if some of these are exactly the same men, he says to these religious leaders, these Pharisees, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. It is they that bear witness about me, Jesus said. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. The scriptures, Jesus said, are about me. But you resist me. And you won't find life. It's this kind of, of spiritual blindness. It is ignorant, and, and maybe even blissfully so. 
God's word is known, but in a sense it's ignored for its core message that reveals Christ. And I see in these Pharisees, these scribes, I see that they're much like our trained academics who have some expertise in the New Testament or the whole Bible. And the Bible to them is something akin to Aesop's fables. It may contain some morally useful stories, but it's certainly not authoritative. And maybe that's how a lot of unbelievers in the world view the scriptures. You see, Satan has blinded them to the truth. We read this together. The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. They're blind to it. They see the baby in the manger and think that's a nice story about a little innocent baby. How lovely. Miss the point. They don't understand that their own sin is an affront to God and that it, that sin demands that God act justly toward it. They see themselves as righteous in God's sight. They are confident that God owes them. Hey, God, I've done lots of good stuff. Hey, we're tight, aren't we? We're good. And if they do have a sense of sin, they think that their best effort really would, would nullify that and, and ultimately satisfy God. Hey, you've done pretty well. Now, people like this can be, can be both very religious. They can be very religious. And, that's, and they'd say that both within and outside of religious structures like Judaism or pagan religions and even, even Christianity, so-called Christianity. That kind of attitude can be prevalent. Now, in our world, we know this, that there are people like Herod who, who vehemently oppose the Christ. And there are even more, though, I would say, who are like the religious leaders who are unaware and uninterested in the good news of Jesus. And we have to understand this. Nothing short of a miracle of God's grace could save them. But that's all of us, isn't it, when we think about it? Nothing short of a miracle would save us. And we see this even revealed in the scripture. God saved a murderous insurrectionist who was nailed to his own cross next to Jesus. Jesus said, to his expression of faith, you're innocent. We deserve this. He said, remember me. Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. That's good news. That is good news for the most, for the worst criminal and the most culturally acceptable, self-righteous individual. But what the common thing is that God humbles them to see Christ for who he is. And we know this. The good news of Jesus will save some, even it is, as it has saved us. So we proclaim him. Well, the rebellious can be saved, but in, the, in our story is exemplified, and this is really my second heading, 
hope and expectation. Hope and expectation. Now, the way we often use the word hope is in the sense of a desire for something, yet the outcome is not certain, right? We, we do this all the time. I hope to get to the Grand Canyon or Mount Rushmore someday. Now, what I'm saying in that is I, I'd like to, but I'm not, not sure really how I'm going to work that out. So I'd like it to happen, but it might not. That's often how we use the word hope. But by contrast, the, the, the way that the Bible uses the word hope, the sense that the Bible gives, is that which is not yet, but it is as absolutely certain as the word of God. So inasmuch that God declared, let there be light, and it happened, our hope that something promised in Scripture will happen has that same level of confidence. It will, it just hasn't happened yet. In some sense, both hope and expectation are synonymous. Now, I've got a definition here of expectation. I realize it's a little imprecise, but something that's an expectation feels like it's something that is near at hand. It's, it's just around the corner. It's within grasp. And in this narrative, we see that these wise men have both hope and expectation. Now, who are they? Let's look at them from the text. Wise men, verses 1 through 6. In the Greek, magos, magi, Magicians, that's where we get that word magician. And it's not in the sense of like the illusionists, but in pagan societies, those are the, the magi were those who were educated in the mystical arts, often astrologers. They were interpreters of signs. And they were often uh, brought into the court of the ruler to advise. So an example really of the magi in ancient times would be like those in the time of Pharaoh. They... These men mimicked a couple of the miracles that God had done through Moses, right? Now, these magi in our story, we, they're called wise men, I should say. We don't know their names, and perhaps you have read that they were given names. Uh, later on, that's extra-biblical sources do that, and they assume that there's three of them based on, on the number of gifts given. And in fact, we don't know that there were only three. That's what tradition assumes, so some of our nativity scenes are probably a little out of whack, you know, when you have the shepherds there and the wise men in the same place. I mean, they could have been separated by a couple of years. Um, we don't know. But the point is, we don't know how many there were, but they came. But it's likely, just given the way that they showed up in Jerusalem, to me, it, there were probably a very large entourage with these wise men, and they drew a lot of attention. And it troubled Herod. It troubled all of Jerusalem. Now, they probably arrived in Jerusalem asking whoever they would encounter. Hey, hey, do you know where the one who is born, the king of the Jews? Where, where is he? How do I find him? And, of course, I take it that that caused quite a commotion because they knew Herod. Well, there's someone who is born king of the Jews, and, and it's not somebody in Herod's line. That's a problem. I wonder what Herod will do. His reputation had gone before him. They feared his brutality. So, I get it. This is a commotion. Now, the text tells us they were from the east. That's really broad. I mean, where in the east? And it's really too difficult to specifically pinpoint. But some scholars say that they're from Persia or Babylon. And if it was Babylon, let's just say it is, that's 900 miles away. And it's probably about five months' journey. That, that would give the indication. So Herod asked the time the star appeared. And if they hit the road right away, 
five months minimum, but probably more if there was a large entourage. That's possible, though, and maybe even probable, I'm not even sure, that these magi were well-trained in the scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures, our Bible, our Old Testament. Because they ask, they ask about a messianic promise. Who, where is he who is born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose. His star, that's notable here. Now we don't know what kind of star it is and I'm not going to speculate about planets and comets and things like that. But suffice it to say, whatever they saw, the, the magi, these wise men, they took it as a confirmation of a prophetic word. And I think it's the prophetic word through the mouth of a pagan that we read in Numbers 24. Let me set that up. The Israelites, following the Exodus, the Israelite tribes, they were wandering in the wilderness. They were waiting possess to possess the land of Canaan. These Israelites, they posed a threat to other kings in the region, especially, most especially, the Moabites and the Midianites. Now, out of fear, this is back in Numbers 24, Balak, he was the Moabite king. What Balak did is he hired this pagan seer named Balaam. He hired him, I want you to curse the Israelites for me. Now the Lord got a hold of him. He would not let Balaam curse the Israelites. He could only utter blessings, which enraged Balak. But that's all that Balaam could do. Now in his final oracle, and this is, this is where I'm taking us, in Balaam's final oracle, he said this, and I want you to listen closely. The oracle of him who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees a vision of the Almighty falling down with his eyes uncovered. And he says this, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. And here it is. A star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. That star to come out of Jacob, and Jacob here representing all of Israel, that could represent both the ruler himself, a scepter, as well, as well as the astronomical sign pointing to his destiny to rule. He says, yet not near and not now, which implies this is, quite a ways in the future. More than a thousand years. Well, after Herod summoned these wise men, he pointed them. He pointed them to Bethlehem based on what he had ascertained from the chief priests and scribes. Right? The star then that had led these wise men thus far, it had appeared again and it gave them exceedingly great joy. Verse 10. And this star, whatever it was, it directed them. In verse 11 it says, It rose, went before them until it came to the precise location of the house where Jesus was with his mother Mary and Joseph. And seeing Jesus, their hope in seeing the one who is born, the king of the Jews, their expectation that it is near and at hand, they fell down and worshipped him. They worshipped him. The word worship, literally to kiss the hand, to, to fall to the ground, touching the forehead to the dirt, that kind of expression, that bodily posture, owing the highest level of honor 
to one who possesses absolute authority, majesty, glory, and power. They worshiped him. And they gave him gifts. Now, they were costly gifts, so that in itself, I think, is an aspect of honor, sacrificial. But I think that there may be more, at least some, some people who studied these things and are smarter than me. They say that perhaps the, the, the specific things offered as gifts were significant. Gold representing royalty, so acknowledging the one who was born king of the Jews, acknowledging his authority to rule. Frankincense representing his divinity. And just as a note, the incense was, was integral to temple worship. It, and it indicated that Jesus was worthy of worship as God. And myrrh, very much representing Jesus' humanity. Myrrh was what Jesus was anointed with in his burial. The text tells us is after the visit with Jesus, the Magi returned to their own country, avoiding Herod as they had been warned in a dream not to. That's verse 12. And Joseph, we find, receives a similar revelation and soon after he took Jesus and, uh, and I think that night, in fact, took Jesus and his mother Mary to Egypt. And he remained there until the death of Herod. That's verses 13 through 15. Now, as we think about the Magi and, and, and seek to make some application here, hopeful expectation. These Magi are called wise men. But I take it that their wisdom was revealed not in their official position as counselors to whatever ruler they worked for, but it was in their attitude towards the Messiah. And if we would be wise today, we would certainly want to emulate what the wise men did. They showed their hopeful expectation. Well, first they were wise because they followed a divine sign, the star. Now, just as an aside here, I want to I want to make sure we understand this. There is a distinction in Scripture between what is descriptive and what is prescriptive. That is to say, describe something going on versus you ought to do this. There's a distinction. So just to be clear, in the same way that we do not seek the Lord to reveal his word primarily through dreams, right? Neither should we take the wise men as an example and be looking into the stars for some divine message. But in the case of these wise men, the sign in the heavens was a secondary confirmation of a written revelation. That matters. We don't need to seek signs. We have the scriptures. Now, I've heard stories. I've heard stories from missionaries where unbelievers, and I think this has been a lot in, in Muslim cultures, Unbelievers have had dreams and the images in those dreams found meaning only after the scripture was read to them and their dream was, was something that the scripture already revealed. So the authority was not the dream, but the authority was the word of God and confirmed by the dream. Again, I'm, I'm default, I'm skeptical about these things. But as long, in, in my mind, and I think this is helpful, as long as the scriptures are seen as the primary revelation, okay, primary revelation, and any other sign that follows doesn't undermine that, 
I think God can use whatever means he wants to confirm the scriptures to us. But the primary revelation is the word of God. Again, the sign pointed back to the word of God. The sign should not supplant or supersede the word of God. So if the sign says something different than the word of God, the sign is false. That's the rule. Now, more importantly, though, as we think about these wise men and how they exemplify hope and expectation, they were wise because they searched the scriptures. Again, the passage in Numbers was probably the one that informed their seeking. I'm convinced of that. They were looking forward to the fulfillment of the scriptures in the very revelation of the king of the Jews. So as we think about this, that Jesus the Christ was born in Bethlehem, that's now a fact of history. So we're looking back to what happened. And we see in Christ the fulfillment of the prophetic word in scripture further confirming that he is the fulfillment of the promise of a prophet from Moses. He uttered, Moses said, like Moses from among his brothers. Jesus is the fulfillment of that, Deuteronomy 18, 15. Jesus is the fulfillment of a forever priest in the order of Melchizedek, Psalm 110, 4, explained further in, in Hebrews 5, 6. Jesus is the forever king in the line of David, 2 Samuel 7, 13. And he was born in Bethlehem, according to Micah, 5.2, and he is the suffering servant who bore the sins of many, fully explaining how he accomplished salvation for the people of God. Hopeful expectation means you anchor that in the word of God. And we take confidence from the fact that the word of God has been fulfilled in so many ways in Christ. From a practical perspective, not that that's not practical. Hopeful expectation also means, in the example of the wise men, that you are wise to avoid evil. Now again, the wise men were warned in this dream to return to their country another way. I don't know. Did they have a sense themselves of Herod's evil intentions? Did they see through his feigning of interest in the Messiah? We don't know. But the Lord gave them another sign. But after their example, I mean, they could have sought favor with the powers that be. They could have ignored that and said, you know what, it's probably good to cozy up to this Herod dude. They didn't. They went to their country another way. Likewise, believers in Jesus, we must flee evil temptations that is both within us and from without. Paul instructed Timothy, and by extension, he instructed all who would seek to be mature he said this to him, flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Dealing with temptation. The remedy to that is not passivity. Rather, it's to pursue as an alternative what is good. We don't just say, well, I'm going to avoid something. Yeah, avoid something. But you have to do an alternative. You need to pursue what is good. So when you're faced with the temptation to think or do what is evil, you and I must proactively seek what, delight, <coughs> excuse me, what delights the Lord. And I know this. We cannot entirely separate ourselves from all evil influence. We still must keep vigilant. Scripture in 1 Peter says, be sober-minded, be watchful, 
your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. At every turn, there's an opportunity to fall into evil. And I say fall, that's an intentional decision not to turn away. Be sober-minded. But you know, ultimately the remedy to evil, that's a gospel one. If you put your faith in Christ, you continue to focus on Christ. The wise men came seeking the one who was born king of the Jews. They came seeking the Messiah. They worshiped him. They gave gifts. They were overjoyed. And I, and I, can, I can imagine as they turned, returned to their own country, they kept on their minds. We have seen the one born king of the Jews. We, we don't know anything about them after they leave. But brothers and sisters, when we've come to Christ in faith, he must occupy our minds. He must have dominance in our thinking. We must keep our focus there. So the remedy to evil in our lives is a gospel one. You focus on Christ. The scripture says this in Hebrews 12. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And we all have to run with endurance. We have to keep going. How do you do that? Looking to Jesus. That means continuing to do so. Looking to Jesus, the, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And so that's why we preach Christ. We do that week after week. Jesus is the focus of all of our teaching, all of our preaching. The entirety of our existence as followers of Jesus is keeping the focus on Christ. Keeping that focus on him not only brings glory to him so that it evokes our continued worship, that's good. but it also has this sanctifying benefit for each of us. Being reminded not only of the, the miraculous entrance of the Son of God into the world, but also the cross upon which Jesus suffered, which he did so in order to pay the penalty of our sin, keeping the focus on why he died and that he rose again on the third day, that reminder, that constant reminder keeps us hopeful and expectant and I would add faithful to see him in his return. This is how this works. If you look to Christ, if you continue to look to Christ, you're not going to be duped by the counterfeit joys that your flesh but also the world offer up to you. You won't be duped. So what do we do, brothers and sisters? We, we, we look back to the manger through the cross to the resurrection and following the example of Jesus himself, we run that race with endurance as we look forward to the day of Christ's second advent when he returns to the world to judge. And in that day, it will be in unmistakable obvious to all power and glory. And while we run this race, 
We constantly come to Jesus, our Messiah, and we bring gifts. Not gold, frankincense, and myrrh, but of our whole selves, offered up. It says this in Romans 12, 1. You're familiar with this, I know. By the mercies of God, we present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. That's what we do. Rebellion and resistance or hopeful expectation. Now, you're here in this room, so I doubt that you're in the Herod camp. But in many respects, that's the world around us, isn't it? It's the world of entertainment. It's the world of the secular academy. It's the world of the social influencers. And, and as believers, brothers and sisters, we've got to be aware of the devil's schemes through these avenues. They destroy their own souls and the souls of all who fall for their lies. Now, it's possible. It's possible that you... In this room or watching online, you may be like the chief priests and scribes of the people. They're the comfortable religious, not particularly moved by the knowledge that, that the Messiah has come. Yeah, knowing the scriptures to some degree, but really yawning at the possibility of God intervening in human history. Whatever. Perhaps to them the Messiah was a Morally useful myth. Neither hopeful nor expectant. And at the beginning, passive towards Christ. But I assure you, by the end, like the, like the chief priests and scribes, possessing the hostile and rebellious same spirit of Herod. So, if you are truly hopeful and expectant, then like the wise men, see, see, brothers and sisters, in the scriptures, see that glorious revelation of the Christ and, and let that word to you be your joy. Let that word to you be the means of your sanctification. Let that word to you be the source of your eternal hope. Christ has come. Christ has paid for your sin. Christ is at the right hand of God the Father right now. He is interceding for you and one day Christ will return in power and glory and we hold on to hope for that day. So lay down your life as dead to yourself and alive in him. And so while we wait expectantly for Christ, look to Jesus and let that be your spiritual worship. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for the revelation of your Son, our Savior, the one who is born King of the Jews, but the one who is born King of all, Lord of Lords. And God, I pray, even as we focus in this time of year as those who anticipated his arrival in Bethlehem, we look back to that glorious day and know what he accomplished ultimately at the cross for us as he was glorified before all creation and he will in glory come back one day. God, keep us faithful to that day. Fill us with joy. Cause us to be people who worship you that we might bring glory to his name. And we pray all these things in his name. Amen.